Hey everyone, it's David Duchovny. Do you ever feel like a failure? Trust me, I get it. Hell, I've spent my whole life almost feeling like a failure. It's appropriate though, because on Fail Better, my new podcast with Lemonada Media, exploring the world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives is the whole point. Each week I'll chat with artists, athletes, actors, and experts about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, I hope we can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out on May 7th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, are you ready to add a sprinkle of joy to your day? Then you need to check out Add to Cart. Hi, I'm Sujan Pak. And I'm Kulap Vilaisak. We're your hosts, and on this show, we talk about the things we buy, the things we buy into, and what it says about who we are. That's right. Each week, we're going to have some honest and maybe, you know, little TMI conversations about all the fabulous, weird, wonderful things we're adding to or ditching from our carts. You know, we talk about beauty products, latest health trends, philosophies we're passionate about. Nothing is off limits on this podcast. We're diving deep into everything we and our guests buy into and exploring what it reveals about who we truly are. We're going to decide what's worth the investment, be it money or emotions. Add to Cart from Lemonada Media has new episodes out on Tuesdays, wherever you get your podcasts. Lemonada. Hi, I'm Claire Bidwell-Smith. Welcome to New Day. This week, I'm thinking about confessions. Why do we make confessions? Who do we make them to? And does making a confession truly absolve us, or is there still work to do? I made a confession last year to Lutheran pastor Nadia Boltzweber, and it was one of the more unexpectedly powerful experiences I've had in recent years. For her podcast, The Confessional, I told Nadia about the night my mother died about a decision I made that resulted in me not being there and not getting to say goodbye. It's a story I've been sitting with for two decades, and it's a story I've told so many times. But here's the thing about making a confession. Who you tell it to is just as important as what you're telling. And what was so different for me this time was how the story was received. It was about the way Nadia listened to my story, with compassion and empathy, and the way in which she saw into who I was that night and the way in which she acknowledged who I've become since. Somehow she helped me bear witness to myself. I'm excited to say that Nadia Boltzweber is my guest today. She's a remarkable person, someone who has gone through a ton of her own shit and come out on the other side as one of the wisest and most compassionate people I've ever met. Nadia. Hey, Claire. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you today. In some ways, I kind of feel like it's an extension of the conversation we had on your podcast, The Confessional, which was one of the most vulnerable, intimate conversations Mm. I've had in a long time. You know, I've been in this very professional space for the last five to 10 years as as a grief expert and grief therapist. And when I spoke with you, I really took off that that hat and was just Claire. And I feel like you got 
into me and my story in such a profound way. Hmm. Yeah. Well, your your episode really impacted people. It, it, it's one of the most talked about episodes when, when people want to talk to me about the podcast. Why do you think that is? I think because so many people have shame about missing somebody's death. Yeah. Like that's, I think it's, I, I think it's more common than we may realize. And it's something that people just never talk about or hear somebody else talk about. So that's always a gift, you know, that, I mean, like it, it is invitational. Yeah. Yeah. This idea of like, I'll go first, being the one to open up and talk about the thing that people are afraid to talk about or feel ashamed about. And when you go first, it is, it's an invitation for other people, even just to acknowledge it within themselves that they are going through something like that. Yeah, that's the form of leadership I practice, which I call screw it, I'll go first. <laughs> so, I mean, as as a like so-called spiritual leader, I'm not somebody who is offering wisdom and advice out of my excess of virtue. You know, like somehow right. I've like I'm so good at forgiveness that I I I'm just I'm overflowing with it so much that I can just offer you so, you know that's not it at all. I mean, I I just struggle with the same shit other people struggle with and try and be as honest as I can about that and hope to sort of share some of my process around it. It's interesting though because I'm very confessional in my preaching too. Like I'll I'll admit somewhat inelegant things about myself <laughs> it, it, in sermons, which is not what people are used to hearing preachers talk about. But there's a reason to do it. So there's a difference between being vulnerable for a particular reason, right, and just trauma dumping on people. And so, and what is that difference? To me, the reason I do it is that my hope is that it will cause a response in the other person about themselves. So if I go, okay, screw it, I'll go first, then my hope is it creates a space around me that's safe for somebody else to step into to to finally go, oh, shit, yeah, I struggle with the same thing. Like now that you've gone first, I feel more comfortable. That's the reason. If what they have instead is a reaction about me, I've not done it right. Mm. And is that trauma dumping? When you when you talk about trauma dumping, is that what you mean? And why do you think people do that? Because people don't know what to do with their pain. And they often don't have great models for what to do with their pain. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes if they're in an online space, for instance, they'll just immediately lead with, oh, I suffer from PTSD from childhood sexual abuse. And I do, you know, it's like, yeah, I think maybe for a lot of people, that part of them had to be hidden or ignored in order to survive. And now they actually feel like they have to lead with it in order to survive. But that's not a survival strategy either. Mm -hmm. That's not a path to flourishing either. I agree. But I see a lot of failure on the part of our culture, our community, our resources, you know, that people don't know where to turn to get their needs met to heal this pain. And so they end up doing their trauma dumping online and on Instagram, you know, totally. And then what it is, is it tests all the people around them. How compassionate are you? 
Right. Are you, like, if you're, if you're a good person and you have compassion, you'll respond with nothing but absolute empathy towards this one thing I told you about my entire life. Whereas, I mean, it's good f- for people to be shown care and to be listened to. Mm-hmm. It, is an, it is a half measure when it comes to healing, right? Like the sort of continual affirmation machine that, that people are going to the internet to receive, it's fine. It's not going to heal you. Like what's probably going to heal you is doing some work that feels a lot worse, frankly, than just <laughs> pure affirmation. What is that work? Where do people turn when they need this healing? Well, there are different avenues. I mean, I've been in, you know, I've been in AA for nearly 30 years now. And talk about people who do hard work that's not that comfortable, but in order to get the freedom, you know, I think people think they're going to get freedom from their pain if they make sure everyone sees their pain and everyone says sorry and they're completely affirmed for their identity as a victim. Mm -hmm. And that might be a step towards, right? That might be better than hiding and just being filled with secrecy and shame. But I have never seen anybody stay in that place and actually be a free person. That makes sense. How do you introduce yourself these days for someone who's listening maybe up until now and they're like, who is this woman? <laughs> We're having this really compelling conversation, <laughs> but they're like, maybe like, who is Nadia Boltzweber? Um, yeah, how, do you, yeah. how do you introduce yourself these days? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a hard one uh, because I guess sometimes I'll just tell somebody I'm an author <laughs> or I'll say... Sometimes I'll say I'm a public theologian, which is true. Hmm. So I, 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 do, I do pastoral theology in public, basically. But I do that through, you know, like the, like the podcast. Like, that's me doing pastoral theology in public and having, I am entirely uninvested if anybody happens to th- intellectually assent to the same theological propositions I do. <laughs> like, that... That's not, that is unimportant to me. So a lot of times the, the gems within religious uh, teaching and practice have been hidden in this little cave of belief. Like, well, you have to believe certain things in order to access these. And I don't think that's true. So sometimes I describe it as my friend Kerlin gave me this image. I basically am sneaking into cathedrals, looking around for the most beautiful, valuable things, hauling them into the front yard and slapping a free sign on them. (laughs) I love that. Right? Like saying to people, tell me what you're most ashamed of that you've done. And if you offer me that, I will exchange it for a blessing. Well, that's a priestly role. Mm -hmm. You don't have to believe any of the things I believe in order to have somebody function in that way in your life. But don't you feel like most people do feel like they have to ascribe to the whole thing or believe all these things in order to even just get a piece? I understand that you're trying to help show them that they don't have to do that, but why do we think we have to, you know? I I mean, I stayed away from spirituality and religion for years because I I didn't realize I could take bits and pieces of it that made sense to me and would would fit into my life. Well, I think that the ego of religious leaders did a lot of damage when it comes to this. So if as a religious leader, my ego is very much attached to creating 
ideological carbon copies of myself, then I will, in subtle and not so subtle ways, manipulate the people in my care to either say they ascribe to it <laughs> or to actually ascribe to it. And um, I th- it's kind of like with our children. Like, there are little, like, our children are not our little ego projects. Like, oh, <laughs> they have to be gifted and excellent. And, like, this is why churches do confirmation. When kids are, like, 13, I'm like, why the fuck are you trying to get a 13-year-old to tell you what they believe about <laughs> God? I mean, Seriously, the only reason is because it's a way of justifying ourselves. It's a way of going like, I know that I'm good if my kid is spouting off the stuff I believe. I mean, why is there such anxiety in our generation of kids? I don't know. (laughs) You know, that's a good question. Although this is coming from someone who very pridefully realized this morning that my 20-year-old and 22-year-old both drive stick shifts like I do. So (laughs) I was just about to tweet that. Like, And again, it's another version of what I just described. Yeah, that ego identification with your children. Yeah. Totally. How's the pandemic been for you? Well, it was an extremely abrupt lifestyle change. In 2019, I was on 90 airplanes in seven countries. Wow. And in 2020, I was in my apartment. So talk about like an uh, opportunity to look at your ego. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not special here. I'm not being treated special or given a, like taken to a fancy dinner. No one's sending a car service for me. There are upgrades in my apartment. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Like none of it these things that I had become sneakily accustomed to without realizing it. So, um, but having said that, um, do you know, um, Annie Lamont, are you friends mm-hmm. with Annie? I know her. So in her recent book, she says that a friend of hers says that when you first meet him, you're really meeting his bodyguard, <laughs> which <laughs> I'm obsessed with this idea. And so in a way I spent a lot of my life with a very, highly trained, well-compensated bodyguard Mm. whose job it was to protect me. And she did a killer job. But for the most part, she's been not needed during the pandemic, just in my apartment. But it's not that I couldn't do it. It's that I was not yet familiar with the me who could do it. Mm. And she's who I met during the pandemic. So I feel like closer to the me that I didn't feel safe showing to the world for most of my life. Do you ever get hit with a cringy memory of your 13-year-old self out of nowhere and suddenly you're panic sweating and laughing at the same time? Don't, don't worry, don't worry. We all get that. It's because being an adolescent is one of the most visceral shared experiences we have as people. And we want to talk about it. Join me, Penn Badgley, and my two friends, Nava and Sophie, on Podcrushed as we interview celebrity guests about the joys and horrors of being a teenager and how those moments made them who they are today. 
New episodes of Podcrush are out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. After season one aired, I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. And of course, my 90-year-old mom, Judy. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me Season 2 is out now from Lemonada Media. I remember in the beginning of the pandemic, just how all these things fell away from us, you know, all these ways we identified ourselves um, and these ways that we felt success and achievement were no longer accessible to most of us. Yet everybody began to do new things like, oh, I'm baking bread. I'm doing an ab challenge. Um, You know, all these things (laughs) everybody was doing at home. It was so difficult for us to let go of these uh, external external ways of of measuring who we are. And and I'm curious what you have to say about that and this kind of idea of achievement. All we've done is live in the same, like having to prove ourselves, having to achieve, having to strive, having to, you know, earn our worthiness in other ways. So instead of trying to only think clean thoughts. Now we try to only eat clean food. Mm -hmm. And instead of like yammering on about how much time we spend at church, it's how much time we're spending at the gym or how tired we are because we're on 90 airplanes in this year. All of it is, is this attempt to sort of gain a sense of identity and security through external reference, you know, and so much of the, project of the self is constantly telling other people who we are and what they should think of us in a sense. I do it all the time. Instead of just being a human being and just (laughs) existing, it's like, could I maybe stop doing my own fucking PR for (laughs) 10 minutes? You know? But so this comes around to something else I want to talk to you about. I feel like the only way to do that, to stop constantly telling other people how to perceive us or caring what they think is to have self-compassion, which is something you and I talked about in our first conversation. I'm bringing it back. You knew I was going to go there. (laughs) So we had this incredible conversation about forgiveness and self. Did you just say gross? Yeah, I did. (laughs) Self-compassion and forgiveness. I know you hate them. Um, But... I think this is such a huge part of, of of the self project, as you call it, you know, a project self. How do we find that? Yeah, I feel like doing something like the confessional and asking people, have you forgiven yourself? Or do you have compassion on your 22-year-old self who did this thing? It was very selfish of me to take undertake that project because I was really trying to get there myself and sort of just asking other people the way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I've, I've allowed myself to hear that there's permission to have compassion Mm -hmm. for younger, like there's actually permission to do it. Yeah. Why do you think you didn't feel permission before that? 
Uh, I think like we don't want to let ourselves off the hook or I don't want to let myself off the hook, but sometimes I think my love of hooks might be killing me. <laughs> so, so right now I'm working on a, on a whole huge project around forgiveness. So I'm working on a book and then recording conversations. that will be a podcast and then doing a tour. I mean, it's this going to be a huge thing I do for the next You're really deep diving. two years. Yeah. And I, and I, you know, I'm driving around the country and recording conversations with people about it. What do you think the difference is between self-compassion and forgiveness? Well, again, my friend Dave Zoll, he's just so smart. He he talks about, and and I wish I understood this concept as well as he does, but he says there's a difference between forgiveness and what he calls applied empathy. What he means is, kind of what I did on the podcast uh, is sort of going, there were extenuating circumstances that led you to this, like, you know, saying, okay, you did this thing you're ashamed of, or that hurt you or other people. Okay. But had you ever seen a different type of more mature behavior modeled for you in your life? Right. Um, Did you have undiagnosed mental illness? Did you like, what were the mitigating factors? And to have enough compassion for those things that the person's offense becomes somewhat more understandable, not that the harm it caused wasn't true harm and there shouldn't be concern for it. But I can get to the point where I'm like, oh my God, of course you stole all that money. (laughs) Do you know? know? Okay. But, but Dave says that's applied empathy. And it's good. He's not, he's not saying there's something wrong with it, but he's making the claim that forgiveness is a different order of reality. So do you feel that you need to be forgiven by someone else instead of yourself? I have my rogues gallery of people who I'm like, they owe me an apology. That person owes me an apology because I have this finely constructed narrative about why. And I can take all the facts of of the situation and the relationship. I can tell them to you in a very crafted way so that I'm the victim and that they're horrible and they owe me an apology. And so I have those in my life. And this week, all I can think of is, oh my God, there are so many, I guarantee you, there are so many more people out there who believe I owe them an apology. Mm -hmm. I'm in the rogues gallery and I don't even know it. Yeah. Do you you know what I mean? But this is important. Let's talk about this because I think we all have this, right? We, we, We all owe someone an apology and there's lots of people who owe us apologies. How do we hold those? How do we let go of them? How do we sit with them? Why do we do this? Well, I mean, I think that if if the goal is mending a relationship, like if that's the, if that is a high value, then apology owning owning up to our shit, you know, really hashing it out, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right? It's hard. It's really scary. It's, it's hard. It's also possible, and I actually think that it's like alchemy it's spiritual alchemy i swear to god something happens that is magical sometimes when it comes to reconciliation mm-hmm. that i see the divine having entry points to help with the mending mm. 
I've seen it. I, I do. I believe that somehow the divine gets its sticky little hands in there <laughs> and helps the process in a way that just us alone can't create. Like this is where we really learn how to be human. Yeah. And like there's a magic that happens when we let our egos, you know, just take a break enough to like and lay our stories, our cherished tales. Our narratives about ourselves. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Ooh, mine are worn smooth. You can see yourself reflected in them. There's <laughs> Well, what are your steps to to breaking out of those narratives? You're right. We all have these stories that we have told for so long about ourselves, about our actions, our behaviors, and yet, you know, like you're saying, a lot of times we know, we know this is a story we've been clinging to for a long time. And then there's sometimes a moment where we feel willing to drop it for a minute. How do we do that? Hmm. I don't know how anyone would do it short of being desperate and somehow, I mean, I think desperation is a really great motivator. When I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I'm, I'm much more teachable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think it's harder to ask for an apology or give an apology? Ugh. Why would you ask for an apology? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you're not asking for an apology as much as you are letting someone know that you're that you're struggling with something that happened. It takes so much for me to get to that point, if I'm honest. Because I will continually ask myself, what part of this is mine? Mm-hmm. I'm I, I, like, I think there is... Oh, if I'm hurt, it must be someone's fault. Let me look and see. Oh, uh, well, I know, you know, I'm feeling some kind of pain or discomfort or harm or whatever. It's gross. And then you externally go, okay, well, who's, whose fault is it? <laughs> oh, well, you know, this person said this. And right after that, I started, you know, post hoc ergo propter hoc. It's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever. But, um, and then you have the story and then you say, okay, the, the pain, I have to alleviate this pain, so I'm going to go to them and tell them how much they hurt me. Well, there are very, very few people in life that I trust enough, that I have a solid relationship with enough, Mm -hmm. that I could approach that kind of conversation. Um, So I think we often just want to put our hurt somewhere and like I just so there's a caution so there are times when it's something that is when it's a relationship that's important enough sometimes you just have to air it out Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and then you have to be prepared for hey they might have something too yeah you know what I'm saying they usually do they usually do so when we can let that stuff go we're in so much better place to have some actual restoration and healing If what I'm saying has a soft landing space, not an ego defense with the other person, I will often come to something that I apologize for as well. Hi, I'm June Diane Raphael. And I'm Jessica St. Clair. And each week we are sitting down to talk all about life's twists, turns, and absurdities on The Deep Dive. 
From exploring the depths of TikTok, which is our only news source, to navigating the complexities of grief and loss, we are just two best friends behind a mic processing life together. This podcast is all about finding the silver linings in the madness. So get ready for unfiltered conversations about motherhood, careers, pop culture, and everything in between. Here at The Deep Dive, we're all about community. We believe in the power of sharing experiences and the strength that comes from supporting one another. And we would love to have you with us. So be sure to join us every Wednesday on The Deep Dive from Lemonada Media, wherever you get your podcasts. Two young fathers are shot to death outside an iconic Utah restaurant. I said, your dad has been hurt really bad. The grief was disorienting for those left behind until one choice changed everything. I just remember writing this letter and it wasn't me writing it. Can a personal decision shape generations? We're all falling for this guy's trick. I'm Amy Donaldson. Season two of The Letter, Ripple Effect, is available now. Follow us at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I can think of several situations I've had with friends over the last 20 years where I have done something, but even when I've gone to apologize, it hasn't been accepted and the friendship has, has deteriorated, you know, and really, yeah. And then there's lots of cases where that's the opposite. You know, I've moved through amazing Mm. moments with people and become closer and, and had that, that sense of that divine magic in a way, you know, and grown from well, it. How do you make sense of the previous thing you described though? How do you That's make what sense I'm asking of... you. I don't know. You know, these are like, I still, I still dream about these people sometimes because it's still yeah. sitting with me, you know, this, I know. this, I know. this sadness and, and pain that the relationship is over or that they still haven't forgiven me. Um, or that they haven't been able to talk about it. And I still hold some of those, you know, because I don't know what oh. to do with them. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I feel that so much. Yeah. I feel that so strongly, Claire. I I mean, there are people who I had loving friendships with, mm-hmm. and the friendship has collapsed because of certain things, and there's been no reconciliation. And I don't, I don't know what to do. I don't. And part of me is like, well, can I let go enough of my stuff? I don't I don't know. They're complicated, you know. Yeah. And but I do feel the grief of it. Mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. You know. I mean again, as somebody who you know thinks about and teaches and counsels people around grief, you know, like the end of friendships, that's a grief that we don't talk about that much. It's true. And it can be so painful. Um, Devastating. Yeah. I have moments where I feel like I've moved past it or moved through it or forgiven myself for not being able to have achieved forgiveness with them, you know, but then sometimes it comes back and I'm like, gosh, I still really miss that person. And I still feel pain around this breakup. Yeah. That landed in my ears as, as kindness. When you said you don't know anyone who gets to midlife Mm -hmm. without that happening, because I just assume I'm part monster. (laughs) Like I just, (laughs) do you know what I mean? And that's why I have several of these. Oh, I get it. But that goes back to this, um, you know, screw it, I'll go first idea. So if you show Mm -hmm. your monster first, other people are more likely to be like, oh, okay, you know, here you go. Totally. 
as a last question, let me let me let me ask you about a little bit more about this generosity because I was thinking about when we spoke for your podcast, you were so generous in the way that you listened mm. to me. When I listened back to the the episode after it aired, I remembered I sat in my car and I wept. I called you. Um, yeah. <laughs> and because I felt like you had really listened to my story and and in in that because you offered this blessing at the end that so succinctly saw into all these moments of who I was in ways I hadn't seen. And I felt like that was very generous. I think sometimes we're scared to to love people or to give them parts of ourselves because I don't know why we get so scared, but what you did in that in that experience was very generous. Is that something you've always been able to do? No. And I think I've I've experienced the generosity of others because you're talking about generosity of spirit in a sense. And I have experienced that in others and that has transformed me in a way that the criticism of others never could. So this is what I keep going back to is like, if we do believe in human transformation, if we think human transformation is possible, where do we really, really see it? And as a result of what? So, you know, Jean Valjean was transformed, just absolutely melted into a different shape of a man. But it wasn't because of the accusations of Javert. It was because the priest, when he had completely fucked the guy over, literally said, I want you to have these candlesticks too. Please, please take them. You need them. Like, it was a generosity from somebody when he knew he didn't deserve it, right? He hadn't earned it. He hadn't made himself good enough to have somebody be that generous. None of the bullshit messages society gives us. It was grace. That is what transformed him. And so I think that that is much more of a path towards transformation than call-outs, accusations, shunnings, you know, all the performative cruelty that's very popular right now. Grace. Um, I think that's a that's a really good word for this. For both compassion for ourselves, for others, forgiveness is having grace. Thank you, Nadia. Yeah, my pleasure. I loved this conversation. When you talk to someone like Nadia, you can skip right past all the layers we usually cover ourselves up with and dive into some really amazing places. So this week's practice is about forgiveness and mending past relationships. We just got through Thanksgiving, and I'm sure that things got stirred up in one way or another for most of you out there. It's kind of impossible to take an already loaded holiday like Thanksgiving, throw in a bunch of mixed family dynamics, a little pandemic, and a lot of regular life angst, and come through it unscathed. Perhaps you got your feelings hurt, or maybe you hurt someone else. So this week, I want you to think about apologies. Think about the people in your life you have let go. Is there any relationship worth mending and circling back to? As you're considering mending a relationship, think about what Nadia's friend told her. Offer that person applied empathy and consider all the circumstances that were at hand when the relationship split. Think about the way it ended. What part of it is yours? Does someone deserve an apology? If so, when reconnecting with that person, try to give your words a soft intention and tone. 
Think about how you would like an apology to land in your ears. And regardless of what happened with that relationship, have you forgiven yourself? One of my favorite techniques is to write a letter to the person you're in conflict with. You're not going to send this letter. This is the letter you write as though they're never going to read it. Say anything you want. Say everything you need to. Confessions, apologies, rage. When we allow ourselves to really say what we want to say, that's when we can fully understand what we're feeling. Often, we don't even know why we're so upset, because we get so caught up in trying not to be. Look, the art of forgiveness is tough. It takes a lot of different tries sometimes. If you're struggling, here are some things I recommend. Obviously, Nadia's podcast, The Confessional. And Desmond Tutu has a beautiful book with his daughter about forgiveness called The Book of Forgiving. Kristen Neff, future guest, has some amazing self-compassion meditations, many of which are available for free on her website. As always, thank you for listening. And if you're a fan of our weekly practices here at New Day, you'll want to subscribe to our Lemonada Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. Each week, you'll hear a new original practice written by me just for you. Search New Day on Apple Podcasts and click the subscribe button. New Day is a Lemonada original. The show is produced by Jackie Danziger, Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, and Ariana Giles. Kat Yours, our engineer. Music is by Hannes Brown. Executive producers are Stephanie Whittleswax, Jessica Cordova Kramer, and Claire Bidwell Smith. New Day is produced in partnership with the Wellbeing Trust, the Jed Foundation, and Education Development Center. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at Lemonada Media across all social platforms, or find me at clairebidwellsmith.com. Join our Facebook group to connect with me and fellow New Day listeners at facebook.com slash groups slash New Day pod. You can also get bonus content and behind the scenes material by subscribing to Lemonada Premium. You can subscribe right now on the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then the subscribe button. Hi, I'm Feminasty Erin Gibson. And I'm homosexual Brian Safi. And we're the co-hosts of the Attitudes Podcast. Where we talk about LGBT plus issues, gender issues, and pop culture. Probably with much less respect than they deserve. Look, it's a wild world, and we want to help you laugh at it. Plus, we discuss everything going on in our lives. Like what do you do when your husband accidentally starts a fire in a dumpster? And the best armpit slapping techniques to get rid of the bags under your eyes. Thanks for the advice, Mom. And of course, how to spin a wig around to achieve a brand new look. Ah, stunning. So if you're a fan of high heel shoe chairs or have a crippling fear of hot air balloons, but also believe in social justice, then this show's for you. Listen to Attitudes anywhere you get your podcasts. Do you ever get hit with a cringy memory of your 13-year-old self out of nowhere and suddenly you're, you're panic sweating, you're laughing and maybe a little, little bit of tears are coming all at once? Don't worry, we all do. That's because being an adolescent is one of the most visceral shared experiences we have as people. And we, we want to talk about it. So join me, Penn Badgley, and my two friends, Nava and Sophie, on Podcrushed as we interview celebrity guests about the joys and horrors of being a teenager and how those moments made them who they are today. New episodes of Podcrushed are out now. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts.